Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This time, on To War and Back. Walking in and seeing her so sick. There was that one point where, you know, she thought she wasn't going to make it because of the MRSA and the infections that she got while in the hospital. It was kind of a shock going in. I was just drinking way too much, and I'm not proud to share it, but, you know, taking pain medications and mixing it with alcohol and doing that risky behavior, trying to replicate that intensity where I almost killed myself. My dad came to me, and uh, with tears in his eyes, he said, the enemy couldn't kill you, and now you're going to do it for him. Made me realize that there's a lot of families of loved ones who never made it home looking at me, and that sat with me. Welcome back. I'm Phil Briggs, a journalist and a Navy veteran, and this is the story of three American combat vets. U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Kirstie Ennis, U.S. Marine Corps Major Scott Husing, and U.S. Army veteran Sergeant Boone Cutler. So I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. I never like asking people about their injuries or recovery, and especially suicide. I mean, it's not exactly easy to go, hey, tell me about one of the worst days of your life. But after talking with Kirsty, she made it easy to talk about the helicopter crash that ultimately cost her her leg. So I was hopeful that she'd be equally comfortable telling me about one of the darkest days of her life. Uh, I'd read somewhere that your dad actually kind of gave you a real big shot of inspiration. Yeah, no. um, So I don't know if my doctors really did me a favor, if it was a disservice in the long run, but right off the bat, after I made it back stateside and in my recovery, my doctors, you know, my command, everybody was coming back to me and saying, oh God, Kirsty, you're going to, you're going to stay in. You're going to go to the drill field and be the first female drill instructor with a prosthetic. And they gave me all of, like, they fed me all of these lines. Um, and it gave me hope to continue trying and, you know, I'm going to go back and hit the fleet. I'm going back on active duty. But then as this all evolved, you know, I was found unfit for duty twice. And it was mainly because of the spinal cord issues. And then from my neck up. And in that moment, I just felt like I was robbed. You know, I was robbed of my leg. I was robbed of my vision, my hearing, obviously, physically, all sorts of things. And now they're going to steal my career from me. Um, and again, joining the Marine Corps at 17 years old, that's all you know. Um, and like, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I, again, wanted to throw in the towel. And I decided that I didn't want to be awake on June 24th, 2013, uh, though basically one year after um, my initial injuries. And luckily I had friends around that caught on to it before anybody else. And uh, when I eventually woke woke up in the hospital, my dad came to me and uh, with tears in his eyes, he said, you've got to be shitting me. The enemy couldn't kill you. And now you're going to, you're going to do it for him. Um, And I think that's the only time that I've ever seen my dad cry, first of all. Um, But I think that's the first time that I realized what I was doing was being selfish. Um, I thought I was going to be doing everybody a favor by 
getting rid of me and they don't have to deal with my recovery or my issues anymore. But the reality is my behavior was going to impact them even more. Um, yeah. And if I did succeed in taking my own life, then the, what kind of residual stuff's going to be left over? Um, so he did. And he lit the fire under my ass and gave me, you know, the tough love that I needed to get my shit together. Um, forever indebted to him for it. You know, like I said, again, lucky that I had the, have the parents that I have um, to be able to turn around and use that against me. Wouldn't be where I am without it. That's the medicine I purposely wanted to bring out in our conversation because we talk about veteran suicides so often in articles and there's so many things that are going on, but I wanted somebody listening to this to hear it from you, what that medicine really is. How does a veteran find this? Because I, I, I've i found that like, even if they don't have the traumatic injury, they might come back that idle time, that down tempo life, and then the demons kind of creep in and then, and then they're thinking, gosh, I'm just thinking effed up. So I can't possibly be of assistance to anybody else. I'm not the dad I used to be. I'm not the husband I probably should be. And is that's where the suicidal ideations or the think, you know, to put it bluntly, thinking about getting off on an off ramp right there saves everybody the pain of your traffic. But what can a veteran do without those words like from your father? How do we get the vets that are looking at the off ramp to hit the brakes. Well, the reality is, is my, yeah, my dad lit the fire, but I had to stoke it. I had to do everything. Nobody else is going to do this shit for me. Nobody can get better for me. Nobody else can find me all over again, mentally, physically, and emotionally. Like I had to do that. Um, and the reality is, is it's perspective and it's choices. In some cases, easier said than done. I totally understand that. Yeah. But my dad saying that made me realize that there's a lot of families of loved ones who never made it home looking at me. Well, she made it home. My kid didn't make it home or my husband or my dad didn't make it home or whoever. Mm. Um, and that sat with me because just as my family would be deeply affected, theirs are too. Um, and not only that, but I made it home. I'm broken, damaged, a little banged up and scarred up. Yeah. But I made it home. And there's a lot of people that never made it home. So the days that I'm whining and I'm being miserable and nothing's going right or I'm in pain or whatever it is, I do. I think about the guys and gals overhead looking down. Mm-hmm. Because it'd be selfish of me to sit down and throw a fit now. I wish every veteran dealing with those feelings could find the motivation that Kirstie did. When I asked if anybody else really helped her keep it together, she told me I had to talk with her friend Christine. Christine is the owner of a hip hair salon in Oceanside, California, and was described as her sassy friend. When I googled her, that's exactly what I found. A picture of her and Kirstie rocking black mini skirts and high-fiving. I mean, they look like they could have been a rock band. Christine had wild brown reddish curls about shoulder length and tats all down her arm. And a cute, squinting smile that kind of growled with punk rock attitude. Kirstie sort of looked like rock star Barbie with like a full back tattoo. They look like the couple girls you see at a bar that are definitely a force to be reckoned with. So I was excited to give her a call. Now, as a buddy of hers, uh, you know, you confide in each other. What was difficult? What was what was some of the tougher things you guys had to share together as friends? We actually don't too often talk about things that are hard for each other. We are just smart asses. And so that's how I think we kind of know when something's going on with the other one, because we'll just make really awful jokes about things. Oddly enough, there is no like crying on each other's shoulder. It's just tough chick love, <laughs> I'd say. So but with her, 
I guess the fear would be, you know, would she be able to do everything that she wanted to do before? But the real fear, I think, came when the, she lost her knee. Because then that's a game changer from what I've heard from having the amputation below the knee to above the knee. And the tough love thing, I I really feel. Because, I mean, I have friends, and I think that's something about maybe veteran friends or people that, you know, have kind of been in that role. Our friends are like you. They're the tough ones. They're the ones that are salty, the ones that crack an inappropriate joke, the one that like, you know, just kind of cuts you down and 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 that's their way of saying I love you. Um and you guys have a lot Absolutely. of Absolutely. <laughs> I always joke around with her and we'll say funny things we think to each other. But and you know, sometimes other people will hear it as we're in passing with each other, but the moment someone said if someone else said the strip that I say I would knock him the fuck out, and she knows that. So it's, it is that tough love. <laughs> Did she ever have a moment where she kind of needed you to give that to her? Like, did you ever have to really give her the tough medicine? I am pretty nurturing. So when everything was going on in the hospital, I definitely didn't do that at all. It was kind of a shock going in because the floor that she was at, like there's a lot of sick people that aren't doing so hot. So it was actually a shocker to me too, because I can handle a lot of things, but walking in and seeing her so sick. And there was that one point where, you know, she thought she wasn't going to make it because of the MRSA and the infections that she got while in the hospital. So in the hospital, not so much. I kind of, <laughs> I was more lighthearted on the board. When the nurses came in, I changed her name to Princess Baby. I think Princess Baby Angel. So <laughs> I made all the nurses call her that instead of Kirstie. <laughs> <laughs> well, when she's under all the meds, she was loving it. She's like, I am Princess Baby. <laughs> so we were calling it us the Princess Baby Squad. Um, I mean, she constantly surprises me, so I don't have to give her the tough love too much. I think when she's doing super well, that's when I kind of bust her balls a little. I'm like, you're still a little bitch. Even though she's climbing Mount Everest, and I, however, am not, nor would I even ever, right? So, But even in the hospital, I didn't know that she wasn't walking yet. And so I get there because every day after my son was done with school, we would go down and spend a couple hours with her. I'd braid her hair, massage her head, kind of get her to like relax because anyone who knows Kirsty, she does not fucking relax at all. So she, I get down there and she's like, hey, I'm ready to go for a walk. So I'm like, all right. I'm thinking that this is a normal thing that I just didn't get to experience yet. So I get her little, the walker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I pull her shit around so I can like push it while she walks with her, you know leg and the nurse comes out she's like oh we're walking and I'm like oh fuck I'm like sorry <laughs> so I just I have a video and I'm recording her of it having no idea that this is like the first time that she's walking <laughs> that's amazing yeah the nurse is freaking out going somebody call the physical therapist we need a therapist and you're like screw it I'm a cosmetologist we can do this I got this <laughs> no that is awesome I have just been amazed as I've got to know her just in briefly, you know, through the two hours we spent together, uh, diving deep, but talking vet to vet, um, just blown away by the courage and the drive that they have. And I'm talking even before there was injury. I mean, her drive to be a damn Marine was mind blowing, you know, going into a MOS that not a lot of chicks go into. Um, she's an asshole. She's great, but she's also an asshole. So I, you know, like, she's like, fuck it. I'm going to do things that people think I can't do. Just to prove you wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just being a hard ass. She'd get in trouble at school. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this. 
she would get home before the school would call and she would like unplug the phones and shit so that way no one would know. Like she's always been a little rebel. Little because her stature and size. Like she's not a big gal. Like she's teeny tiny. Her spirit is big, but she's still a little rebel. <laughs> so Kirstie, with the help of her family and friends, has found it within herself to keep fighting. For warfighter Scott Husing, the war would be different. By the end of almost a year in Ramadi, he would choose to leave on his own and come home to a wife and family life. Like many military leaders, he would rise to a more senior level where his job was done from a desk rather than the fob, and he would mission plan and manage forces, but not always get to engage with the Marines on the ground. This is why many officers and senior enlisted eventually leave the military after making higher ranks. They miss being a warfighter. They miss being on the ground with their fellow Marines and soldiers, whether they know it or not. That transition brought me back from that deployment. Ultimately, I was with another unit as a higher operations officer with another Marine Expeditionary Unit, and we deployed again. And I was a liaison officer in the Middle East. And then at that point, I knew I was about ready to hang up my rifle. I said, hey, this is enough for me. Um, I'd had some service-related injuries. My, My body was breaking down. I didn't think I could keep up with what is a young man's game? Let's be, let's be honest. You have to be able to run. You have to be able to, to fight and do all the physical tasks. And I, and I could have suffered through them to a large degree, but I felt in fairness to me and in fairness to the young Marines that this was it. And I always told myself, hey, when it stops being fun, when, when I know that it's that time, I, I just have to transition. And a lot of people are scared about that point when it comes up because they don't know what they're going to do but I was very excited about it because I viewed it as a new chapter in my life, a new challenge. And I was trying to keep that mindset as a, as a Marine that everything should be looked at as a mission and a challenge. And I continue to do that even the 24 to 12 months before I transitioned out of the military. And I, and I had a retirement ceremony at Camp Pendleton and I brought a hundred of my closest friends out and they brought the flags out for me and we sang the national anthem and we had a capstone we had this milestone that signified the end and i think that's important and a lot of guys don't want to do that they don't want to have a ceremony and i i did have to forego some big elaborate parade with the trucks and the big flag but i said no this is how i want my retirement to be and yes you can bring the colors out and we'll sing the national anthem and you can give me my award or whatever and and say nice things about me and bad things in some cases, but uh, <laughs> it was it was a small, intimate ceremony and it was an important part of the transition just so you know that thing happens. But I'll say to anybody that wants to forego that experience, suck it up and do it because you don't do it really for yourself. You do it for your friends, for your family that sacrifice so much. You recognize them when you get up there with the microphone And for the young Marines and the young officers in the crowd, they need to understand as well that whether they spend four years or 24 years in the military, their service matters and they're going to get recognized in in some sort of ceremony where it's meaningful. I think that's important. A lot of guys think that they don't deserve it. I don't know what it is, but uh, there's there's nothing. I I don't know. There may be like a Marine Corps now that says, yeah, you got to have a retirement ceremony. So 
which I think is good. Right. Force fun, right? That's what we do. When you get out, you had a job set up so that you didn't have a lot of downtime. But were there moments, because I know that like boredom is not your friend when you get out, especially for the combat warfighter. Idle times, quiet moments, sometimes they, they can be mm-hmm. dangerous. Did you have any moments or were, or were you knowledgeable of that and the dangers of that spare time to keep yourself busy? Not to the fullest degree. I mean, everyone likes to think they are, especially if you associate yourself with certain demographics or classes of people that have training and you're supposed to be self-aware to do the right things. Even those people are susceptible to slipping. Sure. And I'm no exception to that where there's times in life where you just start going down the wrong path and you start to slip and you, you know, you feel that gravity, that traction beneath you and you lose ground. Marines are the worst because they, they think they're impervious to the effects of gravity. And normally when that is the case, they slip and fall and land the hardest. And I'm not saying everybody has to hit the rock bottom, but there's sometimes when you slip and fall that we're lucky where we have a support network of whether of our family or our friends or fellow veterans that they pick us up and they help us back on the road to success and understand that it's all right to slip and fall. It's mm-hmm. all right to be human it's all right to make mistakes and that's part of who we are and, and what we've been through is there's this residue left on our psyches that is never going to really go away. This post-combat residue is my good friend Adam Walker wrote about an award-winning article. It doesn't make you any less of a person. It still makes you usable. It still makes you relevant and he uses a great analogy that I don't know if I've even shared this with you, but mm-hmm. he, he calls it post-combat residue where he shares this story. Young Marine walks into the gunny's office and he sees this coffee cup sitting on his desk and it's stained with this deep rings of coffee after years and years of use. And they say, Gunny, you need to wash that coffee cup out. And he tells the young Marine, hey, stud, there's no scrubbing that's going to get that residue out of that ceramic cup. But it doesn't make it any less useful It still gets me my coffee every day. It still serves its intended purpose from the day it was made. But that residue is part of who that cup is. And everything has gone through. Every time I've taken a sip out of that coffee cup, it still serves me. And he uses that, obviously, to what Marines go through in combat. It's a great analogy on how you can view yourself as not being broken, still being useful and and moving on and being successful in life. There's so many great success stories from keeping connected with guys through what I do now to hear how well they're doing. Yeah. And also that network of brotherhood helps us identify guys who are struggling and we're able to reach out and pick them up and help them continue to be successful. So that's really been a, a, a benefit of, of doing what I do. You sound like you're so together and frankly you are. I mean, you know, I've known you now over a year and it's like, you know, you got for the most part your shit together. Was there a moment when you when you didn't? Was there a moment when you slipped when when it got noisy in your head? Was there ever a moment where your behavior wasn't what it should be? And this is an interesting fact of life of what we experience as veterans who've been through 
combat and that those periods of intensity for a lot of guys, they have to deal with those those things and they have to compartmentalize those in a way that only they know how to do. And we use that word compartmentalize a lot, especially combat vets, because you just have to. You have to, and I use a jam analogy. Again, I love using a good analogy, but it's messy, right? And you you just turn the lid on the jar and you put it in the cupboard and you shut the door and you close the door and you lock it and you turn the key and you think, I'll deal with that later. But in everyone's life, ultimately the ground's going to shake a little bit. And if it does, that jar may fall off the shelf, right? And it falls and it smashes and the jam oozes underneath the crack of the door. And ultimately you got to go to the door, unlock it, open it up, and you got to deal with that mess. And for some, the mess is greater than others, but hopefully through this network and staying connected, people will see that that's happened and someone will grab the broom, someone will grab the dustpan, someone will grab the paper towels and help you clean up this mess that you've created. And for me, I think when you're still on active duty, these young men and women do compartmentalize that. So it just stays locked away. But during those periods where you're not surrounded by the network, you don't have people to talk to and relate to, you shut off from social media, you start drinking, you start doing drugs, you start isolating yourself for whatever reasons. Mine may have been through writing, isolating myself, but those things happen. And I was one of those people that just thought he could handle the isolation and I didn't need anybody. So it was who I became. And I thought it was part of this fucking artistic process or whatever I was going through and sharing this story and maybe trying to, I don't know, be more like fucking authorly or whatever it is. Like, yeah, you drink a lot when you're writing. Like, no, you don't. If you write when you're drunk, it's the worst writing you'll ever, it's the worst words you'll ever put together on a paper and you'll wake up the next morning and you'll be like, what the hell was I writing? What does this even mean? And you just hit the delete key and just start scrolling back because it's complete garbage. So I went through that phase and I was just drinking way too much. And I was still having a lot of problems physically with my spine through some impact-related injuries. I had a lot of spinal surgeries and fusions and I was in constant pain. So I was doing stupid shit like a lot of guys have done. I'm but I'm not, and I'm not proud to share it, but you know, taking pain medications and doctor prescribed medications and mixing it with alcohol and doing that risky behavior, trying to replicate that intensity, that's a losing recipe. It's, it absolutely culminated into a fateful night where I almost killed myself. I've had a lot of people around me help me move through that and understand like, hey, that was that was a bad point where I drank myself stupid and wound up almost killing myself that night mm. and was luckily pulled out, literally, literally picked up by yeah, my friends um, and family. What do you remember from that night? And I get it. On some booze, you might not remember a lot, but well, I rem- looking back. I remember, I remember enough because I, re- I read the, the police report from that night. And, and thankfully, even the first responders that came out were understanding enough to know what I was dealing with. So fast forward a couple weeks, 
And that's exactly where we continued our conversation. I flew to San Diego, rented a Jeep, and drove north to Temecula, California. Scott lives in wine country. And when I was there, it was covered in yellow wildflowers, and there were horse ranches and wineries around every corner. The scenery was just breathtaking. He took me for a drive through his neighborhood and to see the place that marks one of his darkest memories. I stared up at this Spanish-style stucco mansion, and it looked like the Hotel California from the classic Eagles song. Scott went on to tell me that he would often hang out there and drink until late at night, just getting trashed. So ultimately, like, that's where we were at. Uh, We were over at Jimmy's place, um, you know, the day after Christmas, we're neighbor of mine invites me over like we're hanging out with jimmy and just getting crazy and uh, the house that looks like a castle kind of up there on yeah the yeah imagine hugh hefner's like grotto man it's just there's it's you know outdoor patios and it overlooks the vineyards and so i you know that night i left and so just to give you some perspective is you know i obviously was driving out you know no situational awareness and uh figured uh you know I'm on my way back home, which is right there. You can see. Yeah, I was gonna say we can almost see your place from here. I yeah, mean, you're totally like totally like this is doable, right? I can half dri- mile. I can drive home, full of faith and confidence in my abilities. And uh, you know, making it. But how far have we gone? A thousand meters. Yeah. Maybe a thousand feet, and made it to this spot probably right here and then drove over the WL lines and that's where I wound up right there nose first that goes down about 10 feet lower than the surface of the road yeah <laughs> so I, like I've never even done this like I've never even walked back to this spot like check it out doesn't take a big rock to cause a lot of damage but when I was probably doing you know 50 miles an hour and then just decided I was going to take a nap and uh, blacked out and this is where I came to with my Jeep buried in this ditch airbags all around me luckily I had my seatbelt on saved my life so anyone listening thinks your seatbelt won't save your life you're wrong because I would have probably landed over there had I not had my seatbelt on. Yeah, and as you can hear, the cars going by. I mean, this is 55 mile an hour road. Yeah, it was. It was probably two or three in the morning though. By the time I got done partying, you know, and uh, from the house, you know, we were up at the house, and then you know, we drove like a thousand meters down the road, and you know, if you think you can, <laughs> you think you're Superman, and you can. You can still have that type of lifestyle and get behind the wheel of a car. You're wrong. I mean, it was just a sobering moment. Not then, but obviously that's the wrong choice of words as a wordsmith. But, <laughs> no, um, I'm with you, though. I, yeah, mean, like, yeah. I mean, you know what? It, it is a good... I think it is a good choice of words. I mean, just looking at the 10 feet below the surface of the road, you should be dead. Oh, absolutely. I mean, hitting this, doing 50 miles an hour, even if you're doing 40 miles an hour, <clears throat> there's no barrier between the road and where this ledge drops off into this rock pit, this creek almost running here along the side of the road. Yeah, 
with the flowers. You know, it looks like a scenic little rock garden and a ditch, but you know, again, could have. This could have easily been your grave. Oh yeah. We walked back to the Jeep and we headed back to his house and our conversation about that night continued. It's crazy that even though you'd had a decent transition, in my opinion, you know, a job, you were an officer, you kind of had your head about you, you sort of had your way in the world figured out. And and and, and still, some you, of the darkness you, came you, and found yeah, you. Yeah, you use the word, you know, sadness groups. And I'm like, there, there wasn't any sadness. I don't ever pine over things I regret. I, I absolutely have no regrets, but it's just like I wrote about in Echo Inner Body was that, you know, I came to this realization after that one singular event that nobody's immune to it. You can, again, think you have, a, you know, a Superman cape and you're invincible, but if you make bad decisions, if you try and focus inward too much, ultimately that catches up with you. And I think that the culmination of all those events, of all of the the burdens and all the things you see and all the personalities you have to manage and all the daily pressures and you try and find these pressure release valves, whether it's drinking or, you know, doing, you know, you know drugs. And, and, and I don't say that from a, you know, a abusive standpoint. I mean, I was on prescription medications for all the surgeries I've had and backs and I was just yeah, 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 making yeah. bad choices, like self-medicating with that. That's a real thing. And, you know, it wasn't until that one, you know, bad decision that really just was a massive wake-up call. And as I wrote, even for, I mean, over a year, I mean, I just I just couldn't even think of touching a drop of alcohol. I was just wow. physically averse to it because of not the physiological reaction it would have to me, but I think it was more mental that the shame as I wrote about it, is like that that is a powerful motivator. I don't care if it is to motivate you to get to the gym or to stop doing something else, but it, you know, it's it's a powerful motivator and it doesn't matter how old you are, what rank you had in the military, uh, and there's a lot of guys that ignore it like I say uh, they, they want to act like it's not there or but it catches up to you in, in one way or the other and, and it's not always doing something stupid behind the wheel. It could be, you know, taking it on your kids or taking it on your employees and acting like an asshole to people who deserve kindness and not your wrath Right. as a commander or as a, as a person. I mean, there's so many different forms of how people deal with relieving that pressure. Despite coming close to a total wreck, both Kirstie and Scott seemed to get back on track. But for Boom Cutler, who had been kept in a drug-induced haze at Walter Reed, the road looked like it was going to end. We'll hear more next on To War and Back. Why wait? Binge all episodes now, exclusively on the Radio.com app. Or get this week's episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. On behalf of the production team here at To War and Back, I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode. And before we get into the next one, I wanted to share just a couple really heartfelt things. Specifically, I want to share with you three organizations that are doing incredible things for veterans. 
There's the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, a nonprofit that she founded to support deserving organizations and help improve the quality of life of veterans. Whether it's funding to help a veteran business expand or whether it's taking veterans outside to experience firsthand the healing powers of Mother Nature, supporting the Kirstie Ennis Foundation is supporting veterans. Major Scott Husing and the Save the Brave organization has a simple philosophy. There's no pill, no prescription, and no vaccination that can cure the effects of PTS better than connecting with fellow vets. That's why when you donate to SaveTheBrave.org, veterans go on fishing trips, they go on hiking trips, but more than anything, they stay together. Just hanging out, fishing for the afternoon. I mean, getting back together again is what makes the difference real. And it's also what's really going to make a difference in the epidemic of suicide. And that's where Army veteran Boone Cutler really wants you to make a difference. Now, if you look up livetotell.org, you'll find the incredible story of Lance Corporal Johnny Lutz. Lance Corporal Lutz fought the good fight with his PTSD, but sadly took his own life. But now his name and his life serves to inspire every generation behind him. Livetotell.org also has an annual calendar full of events and get-togethers. Whether it's concerts or backyard barbecues, they're always ensuring that the warfighters stay connected. Surviving combat is hard. Surviving with the memories of war can be even harder. But through the work of the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, SaveTheBrave.org, and LiveToTell.org, there's a few places out there doing the work to ensure that warfighters don't just survive, but that they thrive. Supporting any of them is the best way to say thank you for your service. in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 